Well, good evening and welcome to Plum Creek Chapel's midweek Bible study. And once again, we are uh, streaming from home. You know, we've had really bitter cold the last uh, two or three days. And our area where we live is under a winter storm warning. We were expecting uh, four to nine or five to nine inches, I think it was, uh, today and tomorrow. Uh, and uh, so because of the cold and some of the snow that we've had around the area, we just felt the safest thing to do is to keep people off the roads and uh, once again uh, do our Bible study by live stream only. So uh, those of you that are part of the uh, Plum Creek Chapel uh, home family that come uh, routinely uh, to our church building, I hope you're signed up for our weekly newsletter and email alerts uh, because that's how we communicate whether or not we're having an in-person meeting. I sure hope that nobody uh, ventured out into the bitter cold and drove to the church only to find out that we're not meeting in person tonight. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletter at PlumCreekChapel.org and just right there on the home page if you scroll to the bottom there's a box where you can enter your email address and you'll be uh, signed up for all of our alerts. Uh, meanwhile, those of you that are part of the Not By Works family that are tuning in, uh, we're glad to have you. And of course, from your perspective, uh, it doesn't necessarily matter where the live stream is emanating from, although I think all of us agree that it's a much, uh, I think, more uh, fruitful and uh, edifying time together when we have a live audience because I take questions. It's very interactive. And as I said last week, I really don't enjoy uh, just talking to a a camera. I much prefer to have people in the room. But nevertheless, uh, we're going with the flow, and this is where we are uh, tonight. So tonight I'm going to keep it somewhat short uh, for, for a lot of reasons, uh, mainly just because I don't want to get too far ahead in this study without having people uh, to interact with, and I know we're going to be uh, coming back together and reviewing a lot of this stuff when we do get to meet in person again, which, Lord willing, that'll be next week. We'll see. just seems like all these snowstorms seem to hit in the middle of the week. Um, but thank the Lord for technology. Amen. I mean, it's just great to be able to still uh, record these Bible studies and stream them out. And even though I can't see you, it's great to know that uh, we've got a lot of people uh, tuning in online. So, uh, But because I don't want to get too far ahead, we're going to kind of Keep it fairly short tonight. I want to talk about genre, as promised, and uh, kind of introduce that topic. And then uh, hopefully next week we can go into more detail when we meet in person. So uh, for tonight, let me just mention a couple of announcements. I always like to mention my Tuesday podcast as part of the Christian Underground News Network. And uh, we record those on Tuesdays, and they are up live usually by mid-morning. But yesterday our topic was how Christians should respond to suffering. How should we respond to suffering? And so I uh, really uh, spent a lot of time in the Word yesterday on the podcast, and I think you'll find that uh, beneficial um, and uh, something that all Christians face, uh, some more than others, and at different times we face more suffering than at other times. So it's good, uh, basically, theological overview of a biblical view of suffering and how we should respond to it. Uh, Sunday, we uh, continued our look at the second coming and the kingdom, and we looked at uh, one of the key passages on the second coming, Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, and had a great discussion and uh, good uh, Bible study there. That's uh, every Sunday at 9 o'clock Mountain Time. You can live stream it for those of you that aren't in the Denver metropolitan area, or of course, you can always go back and watch the videos or listen to 
uh, the podcast. And so at notbyworks.org, if you just hover over the videos menu, you can see one that says What Lies Ahead. You click on that and all 47 so far of our videos in that series are available. I uh, also want to remember, I didn't mention this the last couple of weeks, I don't think, but we do offer a more in-depth, self-paced, independent study course on Bible study methods that uh, covers in greater detail a lot of the stuff that we're covering in this Wednesday night study. If that's something that would interest you, check it out at notbyworks.org or shoot me an email and I'll tell you how you can uh, sign up for that. So uh, this is our 15th week in uh, this midweek study on how to read and understand the Bible. The last several weeks we've been systematically going through uh, 24 basic rules of interpretation. And then as we've gotten to certain rules, we've kind of taken a, a little sidetrack on more detail about that particular topic. And uh, last week uh, we talked a lot about uh, how to interpret Bible prophecy. And I was really uh, looking forward to doing that in person because it always generates a lot of good discussion and questions. And so we will come back to that if we can ever get, to get, get together in person again. Um, but just to review, we talked about how there are basically three kinds of prophetic fulfillment in Scripture. In other words, when you look at a prophecy where God is predicting something through His Word, uh, there are three ways that that can be fulfilled. Uh, it can be fulfilled completely just in the sense that there's a prophecy and it comes true. Uh, one prophecy, one fulfillment, it's all done. And we looked at things like uh, the uh, virgin birth of Christ and in Isaiah 7, uh, 14, or the uh, birth of Christ being predicted to be in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. We looked at uh, some of the Davidic Psalms, uh, so, uh, like, for example, Psalm 2 and Psalm 22. Spent a lot of time talking about that, which I believe are uh, direct or complete fulfillment. Uh, but then sometimes a prophecy is given, and it's one prophecy, but it's fulfilled over time um, by design. That's the way God intended it, like the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. It's a 490-year prophecy, and you can't say that it's all done until you get to the end of the 490th year. Or the same thing with uh, Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years of captivity. If you're 10 years into that captivity, that, pro that prophecy is being fulfilled, but it has not been fulfilled. And uh, so uh, partial fulfillment is just one prophecy, but it's fulfilled in stages or over time. And uh, we also looked at <laughs> Isaiah 61 as one example of many Old Testament passages that speak of the coming Messiah uh, as if it were one event. And the prophecies will often conflate his first advent and his second advent. And Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 is a classic example of that. Uh, Jesus quotes that passage as we looked at uh, last week in Luke chapter 4. And uh, he, he says that part of it's been fulfilled in his first coming, but of course the rest of it won't be fulfilled until his second coming. Uh, so uh, that's another example of partial fulfillment or where a prophecy is fulfilled in stages. And then the last kind of prophetic fulfillment is the most unusual. Uh, I call it analogical fulfillment. I mentioned last week that sometimes you'll hear people call it typological fulfillment. If you're not familiar with that term, it comes from the biblical concept of a type, T-Y-P-E. Uh, that comes from the Greek word tupos. It just refers to an Old Testament uh, event or person or symbol that the New Testament designates as having been a picture of Christ. We call that a type of Christ. And uh, somewhere uh, in our archives, uh, 
Uh, we used to have a DVD of this, but I don't think we even have any more DVDs, but it's probably out there on YouTube or on some uh, video channel. I did a whole video on typology and how, what are the rules for identifying types. And, um, and so I believe that a type is only, uh, you can only consider something a type if the Bible designates it a type. So, for example, a lot of times you'll see Bible teachers refer to Joseph as a type of Christ. And they do that because there are experiences that Joseph had that are similar to things that Christ faced. And also, I've heard the argument that as far as the biblical record is concerned in Genesis, we don't have any real negative uh, accounts of Joseph. In other words, we don't have any record of him doing anything wrong or bad. So some people will say, oh, he's a type of Christ. Well, the Bible never calls him a type of Christ. And so we want to be careful about that because if we uh, say Joseph is a type of Christ, uh, no matter how striking the parallels may be, then it kind of opens the door to saying that anything can be a type. And it's basically right back to allegorizing the scripture, allegorical interpretation. Um, and we, you know, our ideas originate in our mind rather than on the words on the page. So I'm uh, an advocate of a very strict, limited definition of typology. Um, one of my mentors and uh, colleagues, actually, who I had the chance to work with on one of my books, uh, Freely by His Grace, was the late uh, Dr. Roy Zook. And he wrote an excellent uh, book about types. And I... Uh, uh, undoubtedly was influenced by his teaching, but I think he's right, and I've kind of followed his uh, pattern of limiting types to what the Bible designates a type. So, so anyway, I call it analogical fulfillment, not typological fulfillment. And analogical fulfill fulfillment is just when you've got a prophecy, and it's you know it could be a, a, a complete prophecy or a partial fulfillment prophecy, but it's one prophecy, but it's it's referenced a second time by another biblical author who sort of takes it uh, sometimes wildly out of context to make a point. And in that case, it's not saying that there's a secondary fulfillment of that prophecy. It's not suggesting you've got one prophecy with two meanings or two fulfillments. Uh, it's still only one prophecy, one fulfillment. But the writer is, uh, and typically of the New Testament, is using that prophecy to make a theological point. And we used Matthew as a, an example of that. Uh, in what we call his fulfillment formulas. Matthew is uh, known for uh, frequently using Old Testament passages. Obviously, he's writing to the Jews in his gospel uh, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, so it makes sense that he would use a lot of Old Testament references. But often he'll take an Old Testament prophecy and he'll say, he'll, he'll apply it to something that happened in the time of Christ. And he'll say that whatever that was that happened in the time of Christ happened that it might be fulfilled what was said by the prophet, and then he'll quote him, Hosea or Isaiah or whoever. So whenever you see that phrase in Matthew, that it might be fulfilled, he's using the word fulfilled, the normal word for a fulfilled prophecy, plerao is the Greek word, but he's using it in a different sense. He's using it in a theological sense, and obviously he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, so he's entitled to do that. We don't have the same freedom today when interpreting Scripture, we can't wildly uh, come up with analogies that, and say, well, this really means that. Uh, but Matthew did and could. And so I, I went through a few of these last week uh, showing how Matthew, uh, and I'm re reviewing this, by the way, because it's a good segue into what we're going to talk about tonight. 
But Matthew, by the nature of his type of literature, being gospel literature, which gospels were not limited just to the Bible, um, the gospels that are part of the infallible inspired word of God, obviously, are the ones we have in the Bible. But there were other gospel literature out there around that same time, the Gnostic gospels, for example, uh, that are not accurate, and, and but the style was the same. But the, the nature of gospel literature, as we're going to see in a moment, is that you take selected events from the life and ministry of Christ and you piece them together in a generally speaking chronological order. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all go from the birth to the passion, the, the death and resurrection. But along the way, you're, you're basically putting things together that will resonate with and sort of jump off the page with your original readers. And so, as we talked about last week, the way Matthew juxtaposes Old Testament prophecies uh, in, in the life of Christ, and he sort of brings alongside you know, Israel's history with the history of the ultimate seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, as Galatians tells us. Uh, he's basically wanting to show them that, look, Jesus is the true Israel, the one who you know, fulfilled the Messianic prophecies, and he succeeded everywhere that the nation, you guys, you know, thinking of the Jews that are reading this gospel, uh, failed. So we talked about how Matthew quotes Hosea 11, uh, which is speaking of Israel's exodus out of Egypt, where they were in bondage and they left to come into freedom, ultimately into the promised land. Not that generation because of unbelief, but the nation of Israel uh, and their descendants ended up in the promised land. So, um, you know, I think uh, Hosea is pretty clear about what, what that means. It was the out of Egypt was, you know, a, a calling from bondage to freedom. But Matthew applies Hosea 11 and Matthew 2 to the fact that Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Egypt to flee from Herod's rampage when he was murdering all the babies. And, and, and then when they came back after that was done, uh, when it was safe to come back, Matthew says, you know, that, that's the fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. 1. Well, obviously it wasn't the fulfillment in a traditional prophetic sense. But Matthew is simply showing that whereas Israel was disobedient after they left Egypt, Christ was obedient. Israel was baptized in the Red Sea. Uh, that's the next thing that happened in their exodus. The next thing that happens in Matthew's account is Christ's baptism by John the Baptist. Israel wandered in the wilderness after crossing the Red Sea for 40 years. The next thing that happens in Matthew's account of the life and ministry of Christ is that he wanders in the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, Israel, during the 40 years, goes up into the uh, mountain, Moses does, to receive the law. Jesus uh, right after the 40 days, goes to the mountain to preach a sermon about the law, the Sermon on the Mount. So if you, we, we could go through the whole rest of Matthew and see, at least there at the beginning, where Matthew is setting the stage to show that this Jesus uh, is proving that uh, the self-righteous piety of the Jews uh, failed them and what they need to have is faith in the only one who can save them. So, uh, so that's kind of what we talked about last week. So uh, this is why it's important to understand the subject of literary genre. Uh, you know, some people, I think, uh, have a bad taste in their mouth about genre. And all we're doing here, we're not suggesting that, you know, the, the biblical writers were somehow beholden to some external rules that, you know, the, that, that's not it at all. The, the biblical writers all wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But 
uh, in their day, just as there is today and in every age, there were styles of literature. And depending on what the Holy Spirit was leading them to write, it would, it would translate into words on the page or the scroll or the papyrus or whatever it was uh, as, as, as that genre. So, you know, to use as an illustration, if we think about today in English, we have, uh, for example, the genre of novels like Tom Clancy, right? Uh, it's a novel. We know what it is. And we, we understand that from the time we pick up the book and start reading it. We know that it's fiction. We know that it's uh, telling a story, that it's uh, going somewhere. We want to start at the beginning and read all the way through to the end. And it, it's telling a story. It's a, it's, a, it's a novel. But that's quite different from the style of writing in a newspaper like the New York Times, you know, and you can see their their byline there, not byline, but their tagline there in the top left, all the news that's fit to flush, I mean, fit to print, uh, the New York Times. But uh, obviously a newspaper is totally different than a novel. It's got different sections. It's got uh, want ads. It's got classifieds. It's got regular marketing ads. It's got op-eds. It's got headline news. It's got front page news. It's got a lot of different things. It's, you don't read a newspaper the same way you read a novel. Uh, I mean, you could pick up a newspaper and start at the beginning and read all the way through. I don't know why you'd read any mainstream newspaper today. They're all controlled and propagating uh, lies, <laughs> but uh, uh, you could do that. But it's, it's clearly a different type of literature. Or take a love note, for example. You know, If someone writes a nice little love note on a napkin, well, you're not going to read that the same way you read a fictional novel or a mainstream magazine or, or newspaper. It's got different uh, context and, and a different approach, right? Uh, similarly, if you're reading a textbook, you know, you're, uh, people don't generally curl up with a blanket and a cup of hot cocoa by the fire and pull out their elements of calculus book to read, right? It's usually a book that you read when you're trying to solve a problem. You're doing an assignment. You're getting ready to study for an exam. It's an academic context. And th therefore, the structure of that uh, book and that literature is going to be different. And you're going to read it differently. Now, obviously, let me interject that we've talked a lot about the basic fundamental rules of language. And those don't change. Those are cross all genders, almost said cross genre, but that, that would sound uh, that would sound too close to transgender. But they are cross genre. Every genre uses fundamental grammar, syntax, words, words have meaning and context. And we've already covered that. We've talked about the plain literal meaning, the way words are intended to mean. You don't look for some hidden deeper meaning. So we're not suggesting here when you talk about the difference between genre that when you read a calculus book versus a Tom Clancy novel, the words themselves are treated differently. But what we are saying is understanding the, the nature of the genre will help you interpret the overall message of that literature, right? Uh, a calculus book, uh, you're, you obviously if you're taking a calculus course, you're going to go through it chapter by chapter. Um, but there's going to be there are going to be certain places where you focus in more uh, intently. Maybe if you're struggling with a particular concept, and so you want to reread that. The typical math textbooks are going to have 
sample problems and illustrations and things like that. Uh, here's another one. What about a simple instruction manual? You know, you buy a bicycle for your son or daughter and you want to put it together. You, you pull out the, uh, the instructions, right? I mean, I don't. I, I just do it, you know, from feel my way through it. I mean, only weak people would use the instructions. But I mean, a lot of people will use instructions on how to assemble uh, a bicycle, right? And, uh, you know, it typically has pictures that you can't understand. Uh, it's typically, uh, since most uh, products are manufactured in China, the language and instructions are often awkward and hard to understand. Uh, and if you can't understand the pictures and, you, and the reading is confusing, then you're really up, uh, up a creek. So, uh, but still, that literature is different. Or, you know, your owner's manual. You know, when's the last time you pulled out your owner's manual from your glove box of your car and just sat down and read it cover to cover? Probably never. But if you're like me, there have been many times when you pull it out to, you know, figure out, uh, okay, now how do I... Uh, do the, how do I turn on the child lock on my door? Or how do I turn off the child lock on my door? How do I uh, change a flat tire? Or, you know, how do, where's the windshield wiper fluid reservoir? You know, those types of things, things that you can't remember. Um, so it's, again, it's got a different use and it's a different genre. Obviously a, 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 a phone book, you know. Uh, now do you younger People don't know what a phone book is, but that's before we had cell phones and computers and digital technology. They printed uh, uh, several times a year a massive book that had everybody's number in it. So if you wanted to look up someone's number, you'd pull out the phone book. And pay phones, which they don't even have those anymore, often had a, a yellow pages attached by chain hanging beneath the phone. So if you got in bind and you needed to call a, a tow truck or you needed to call a repairman or something like that, you could look up, uh, you could find the nearest payphone, and they were typically on every corner, and you could look something up. So the point is, every language has different genres, and the same thing is true with the Hebrew language of the Jewish people in the ancient Near East, and the, the language of the first century Greco-Roman culture when they read and, and wrote and spoke Koine uh, Greek. So we've talked about how the Bible is structured, and I think it's important to understand that this is not random. Uh, this is structured uh, based on genre for the most part. Now, God didn't, you know, supernaturally, you know, tell us and reveal, you know, this, thus saith the Lord, here's how you put your Bible together. Obviously, the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents by 40 different human authors in three different languages, uh, Aramaic being the third. Uh, but over time, as God superintended over the process of us, you know, discovering the, the, the inspired books and collecting them and organizing them, it is self-evident to those that are reading them that, oh, wait, these are history books. You know, these are history letters and things that revealed, you know, a narrative. Uh, oh, these seem more poetic. Uh, you know, we would sing these. Or these are instructional letters on how to live life. You know, and these are gospel books. You know, so that's why the Bible is organized this way. So let's take a look at a few uh, uh, categories of literary genre. And, uh, and I'll give you a few examples. And then we'll wrap it up uh, for our Bible study tonight. And hopefully we can uh, examine this in a little more detail uh, next week. So uh, the first one I want to talk about is historical narrative sometimes just called narrative. 
but this is a broad category in which story is prominent and it includes historical accounts. So if you go back to our books of the Bible, in the Old Testament, the books of the Bible that were primarily historical were Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now it's important to understand that while a book might have a predominant genre, within that book it might make use at various times of another genre. For example, in historical books, sometimes the author is telling the facts of the matter and recounting a historical event, and within that event, one of the people in the story will tell a parable. You know, you remember when uh, uh, David, uh, when Nathan confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba, and uh, he told a parable about the man with the little ewe lamb. Well, it was a parable, but it was part of a historical narrative. So we need to understand that a particular book of the Bible can have multiple genres, even though that book as a whole is part of a predominant, you know, one, one genre. So again, if we go back to historical narrative, it's a broad category in which story is prominent, it includes historical accounts. In the New Testament, the only histor truly historical book is uh, the book of Acts. Now, other books of the New Testament obviously recount historical events. Uh, obviously, the Gospels do, but we're going to talk about what Gospel uh, literature is here in a moment. So, uh, here's an example. I just uh, screenshotted these from my Bible uh, program, but this is from Acts chapter 3. And the reason I did this is I want to show you that sometimes even the way the translation is laid out on the page in our Bibles uh, is influenced by the type of genre that it is. So in a case of, uh, you know, if you have your Bibles, you, you, can, you can check this out. But in the case of Acts, it's usually full justified columns. Each verse starts on its own line, and it's just basically telling a story, like you see here in Acts uh, chapter 3. We'll be looking at this passage a uh, week after next in our Sunday morning uh, sermon uh, series. Uh, and so, you know, you see him just telling a story. A certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried in, and this man is healed, the man by the beautiful gate by Peter and John. It's a great story. And obviously it's true. It's part of history. Uh, the next genre is wisdom or poetic literature. And this is going to be laid out a little bit differently because by its nature, it's writings that are intended to be spoken or sung predominantly, but not necessarily read. Of course, back in the day, they didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, writings that were passed around for people to read. That, uh, the Hebrew language was largely a, a, an oral tradition. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why if you go back to our chart here, uh, whereas there's a correlation between the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and the Gospels. They're both narrative, but a particular kind of narrative. There's a correlation between the historical books of the Old Testament and a direct correlation with the historical books in the New Testament. They're very similar. Prophetic letter literature, uh, same thing. Uh, you know, you don't really have poetic literature in the New Testament. Um, in fact, I probably should redo this chart and not make uh, them the same color. Uh, that would probably be helpful, but uh, that's because poetic literature is largely in the Old Testament because it was intended to be 
it was Hebrew poetry that was intended to be sung or read. So, but if you look at in your English translations, for example, the book of Psalms, here's Psalm 1. Uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and so forth. Notice how it's laid out differently. Remember how we saw uh, the book of Acts was laid out, this historical book? Uh, poet poetry is is different. You know, it's it's not full justified. You have indented lines. Uh, you know, it's just laid out like you would expect a poem to be. Or here's uh, Song of Solomon. You really see it here because the Song of Solomon includes in the Hebrew text different headings. You know, it's all about the Shulamite uh, woman and then uh, her lover and all of this stuff. And it's, it's very poetically arranged. So uh, poetry or wisdom literature uh, has its own character. And so you're going to read it in that way. And a lot of people, as we've talked about recently, try to find symbolism unnecessarily and improperly in poetic literature when it wasn't intended to be there at all. So uh, when we talk about, you know, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, those types of things, those are not references to Jesus. Uh, even though some people think it is, they just uh, aren't aware of the fact that this is poetic uh, literature. Then you've got prophecy, one of my favorite genres, because it's, as we've talked about last week, it's about either foretelling or forthtelling, uh, you know, pr proclamation uh, to a particular people, a direct word from God, or potentially a prediction of something that God is going to do in the future, either near future or long-term and times future. So we call prophecy strident, authoritative presentation of God's will and words. It's typically corrective. Even some of the end times prophecy, remember 16%, roughly speaking, of the Bible is unfulfilled future end times prophecy. So, but even some of that was given in the context of correction, like God will say to Israel's enemies, you know, someday, you're, you know, you're going to get what's coming to you. I mean, God doesn't say it quite that way, but you get my point. And so he's, and then he predicts something about the tribulation or the day of the Lord's wrath. And, and he, uh, you know, is making a long-term prophetic statement, but he's doing it in the context of a rebuke. Uh, so here we have uh, Isaiah chapter 1. You'll notice it's kind of similar to Psalms, the way Psalms was laid out. If we go back there, this was... Psalms 1, again, these are our English translations, but it, it's also true in the way the Hebrew uh, was written. Uh, but, uh, you, know, uh, you know, in the prophecies, what you've got is, you know, again, it's kind of a combination between narrative and poetic because it's, it's typically a prophet speaking for God, you know, a messenger uh, for the Lord. Uh, and so, you know, he's, he's you know, piecing together these strident, these strong words from God, thus saith the Lord, that, that kind of thing. Here we have from uh, Isaiah 7, another prophetic uh, portion of Scripture. Um, and, and by the way, and the reason I put this up here is this is an example of a genre within a genre. Because in Isaiah 7, it's setting the stage for a prophecy that's about to come. So it's laid out almost exactly like you would expect you know, a narrative to be laid out, going back to Acts. See how you got one verse per line, and, uh, and it's just sort of recounting, you know, facts of the matter. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jossam, the son of 
Uzziah, king of Judah, that resident king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. I mean, if you didn't know better, you'd think that's part of a, a narrative. And, and it is. It's just in the midst of a prophetic book. So that's prophecy. Proverb is another type of literary genre. Uh, I think in my chart, let me go back here. Yeah, we kind of put that in the midst of poetry. But it's a genre that is really kind of like Gospels, should be in a class by itself. Uh, Proverbs are poetic and wisdom literature, obviously, but they are unique. They have the, the, you know, these short, pithy statements of moral truth. Um, uh, somebody said, uh, and we're going to probably take some time to talk more about Proverbs because they're, they're really unique and, and, and often mishandled. And so I've got some uh, lectures that I might want to go back over again with you on, on Proverbs. But someone has said that reading through Proverbs is like trying to have a conversation with a person who only speaks in one-liners, <laughs> you know. And I think that's a great way to describe it. It's it sort of these pithy little moral truths that reduce life to black and white categories. And, and often Proverbs are addressed to youth. Because obviously, the sooner you start out implementing these world, words of wisdom, the more benefit it's going to be in the long term. So uh, one of the unique features of Proverbs is the uh, parallelism. Uh, there are different kinds of parallelism. It's a, it's a form of poetry. Um, uh, you've got synonymous parallelism, antithetical parallelism. Uh, you, you, and then you've got some that's just sort of like a narrative parallelism, not, not even parallel, actually. Uh, so you see this illustrated here. This is Proverbs chapter 10. And for example, uh, verse 1, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. So there's some you know, poetry there, kind of mentioning father and mother, which go together. But, it, but it's contrasting, or what we call antithetical parallelism, where the second line uh, is sort of repeating the truth, but from the opposite perspective. So a wise son is a good thing. A foolish son is a bad thing. So the proverb says a wise son makes a glad father. A foolish son is the grief of his mother. Or verse 2, treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. So again, it's contrasting. The dead giveaway there is the word but, although not all contrasting uh, you know, uh, sonnets there in, in Proverbs have a, the word but. For example, if you look at verse 5 there, Proverbs 10, 5, he who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. So that's contrasting, but it's it doesn't use the word but. So um, then in, in this next one, which is from uh, Proverbs, oh, it's just a little bit further down in Proverbs 10, I want to show you some examples of synonymous parallelism. So if you look at verse 18, this is again a, a two-line parallel proverb, but it's not contrasting, it's synonymous. Whoever hides hatreds, whoever hides hatred has lying lips. Whoever spreads slander is a fool. Basically saying the same thing. You know, don't lie, don't gossip, watch what you say. Or verse 22 of chapter 10. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Okay, So 
A lot of times the word and is a dead giveaway that you're dealing with synonymous parallelism. Uh, and actually, verse 22 is not technically synonymous parallelism now that I look at it. Uh, it's, it's just a continuing statement. Um, but you, you see the point. Now, one thing I wanted to mention is that Proverbs are not always, let's go back to uh, chapter, or, or the first 10 verses here of chapter 10. Proverbs are not guarantees. And a lot of times people have trouble with that statement because, they're, oh, you're saying the Bible isn't a guarantee? No, no, I'm saying you need to understand genre. And uh, there are a lot of examples of this that we could uh, look at. Uh, for example, I was reading in Proverbs 23, today's the 23rd of, uh, what month is this, February. Um, and so I was reading Proverbs 23, and I noticed, for example, chap uh, verse 9. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Now, does that mean that every single time you speak in the, in the presence of a fool, he's going to reject it? Or sometimes do we break through? Does that mean we should absolutely never speak to a fool? No, these are not universal guarantees. They're general principles of life. Verse 10, I notice, says, Do not remove the ancient landmark nor enter the fields of the fatherless. Does that mean it is always wrong, that it's morally wrong, it's a sin if you remove an ancient landmark? Of course not. It happens all the time. Uh, throughout millennia, they've rebuilt cities on top of other cities. It's just Proverbs is saying, uh, you know, be careful about doing that. Make sure before you do it that it's really necessary, that kind of thing. Uh, or another one that just comes to mind, if I can remember the passage. Yeah, Proverbs 22, 6. Um, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he was old, is old, he will not depart from it. Well, any Christian parent knows that that's not some guarantee. A lot of Christian parents have suffered the heartache of seeing their children whom they raised in the Lord. They came to faith at a young age. They taught them the Bible. They were active in church. They prayed together as a family around the dinner table. And yet, over time, these kids grow up and drift away from the Lord. Does that, mean God, does that mean God's word is wrong? God lied? Of course not. Proverbs are, are just general principles. And it's certainly generally true that uh, when you train up a child, by the way, let's take a minute to say what this verse means, because it's often misunderstood. The phrase train up in Hebrew, that verb literally means begin using or dedicate or start out is the idea. Um, Let's see, in Proverbs uh, 19, 18, we see, Chasten your son while there is hope, you know, while he is young, in other words. Or uh, Proverbs 13, uh, 24, uh, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him early. Okay, So the same basic idea as we are seeing here in Proverbs 22, 6. Train up means to start out right. And so the general principle is the sooner you start out kids in the Lord, the less likely they are to drift away, right? Uh, you know, you, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? If you, uh, let's say you adopt a 16-year-old who has been in the foster system their whole life and never been in a Christian influence and has been... Uh, you know, on drugs and involved in all types of, you know, immorality and criminality and so forth. And you bring them into your Christian home and you begin to train them up in the Lord. Well, they can get saved by believing the gospel the same way anyone else can. 
and they can grow up to be godly, mature uh, believers. We, we know a lot of examples of great men and women of faith who started out rough, but that's a lot harder. That's, that's a lot harder to do that. So Proverbs 22, 6 is saying, train up a child when he is young and when he's old, he won't depart from it. It's not a guarantee. So this doesn't mean the Bible isn't trustworthy. It means we need to understand that generally speaking, Proverbs, it's a good idea to follow them. They're, they provide wisdom uh, for life. So like if you, you know, it's not a good idea to jump off a building. If you jump off a 20-story building, you're probably going to die. The fact that history might, you know, record miraculous examples of people who jumped off 20-story uh, buildings, and it does, by the way, people that attempted suicide and, and lived to tell about it, uh, doesn't mean you should go around jumping off buildings, right? Generally speaking, it, that's not a good idea. And generally speaking, you should train your children up early, start them out early, uh, so that they'll uh, learn these principles early in life. So I just wanted to make that sort of comment about Proverbs, that they're not always, you know, should not be taken as guarantees. And I think a lot of people misread them. And uh, like I, I knew a guy once uh, that took the, uh, in fact, I think it's, yeah, it's verse 10 here. He who winks with the eye causes trouble. When I was in high school, we had a Sunday school teacher who said that if you ever wink, you're sinning because God's word commands you never to wink. And I said, sure thing, teacher. No, I didn't. Uh, but uh, no, I, uh, that, he doesn't understand Proverbs. And I wasn't you know, educated enough at the time to understand it either. I thought, oh, it's in the Bible. We shouldn't do it. Well, no, it's basically it's, a, it's, it's not understanding the difference between general uh, pithy statements of moral truth versus absolutes uh, that God's Word uh, gives. So that's, uh, that's a proverb. What about apocalyptic? Now, when you hear the word apocalyptic, everyone immediately thinks of Revelation, which, of course, is the Greek word apocalypsis. The last book of the Bible is the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But there are other types of apocalyptic uh, literature in Scripture, for example, in Ezekiel. But apocalyptic genre is dramatic, highly symbolic material with vivid imagery, uh, often narrated in the first person. And it, it's basically talking about this big picture cosmic struggle between good and evil. So the book of Revelation, though it has a lot of apocalyptic genre in it, is, is a prophetic book. You know, again, if we go back to my uh, chart on the books of the Bible here, you see it's categorized as prophecy. But it's also highly apocalyptic. It's got a lot of this type of vivid imagery. Uh, so, for example, in Revelation 13, uh, then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns and on his ten horns crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name. I mean, that's pretty clear that that's a unique type of literature. And so, you know, one of the criticisms that people, uh, you know, ignorantly make, uh, you know, unstudied people that just don't have any use for the end times, what they'll do is say, oh, Revelation's too symbolic. Nobody can understand it. Well, of course you can understand it. It's one of the easiest books in the Bible to understand. You just have to recognize that these examples of apocalyptic genre are using highly vivid imagery. So I don't need to necessarily understand all the details of what kind of crown it was, you know, how many jewels it had in it. And so I just need to understand that the beast is the Antichrist 
And John is describing him with incredible, uh, you know, horror and, and how evil he's going to be, speaking great and blasphemous words for three and a half years. And, and he's going to get everybody to, to follow him and to worship him. You know, this is that, that's the point. Uh, just because he uses vivid imagery doesn't mean you can't understand it, right? Uh, and yet that's the way people feel. And then here's another one from Ezekiel. He uses a lot of apocalyptic genre where he was told, you know, lie down on your side, lie on your left side, and then lie on your right side for so long a period of time and so forth. It's, it's just unusual prophecies. It's one thing to prophesy, you know, Jesus is going to be born of a virgin or Jesus will be born in, in Bethlehem. That's not apocalyptic. That's pure prophecy. But sometimes the prophets use this vivid imagery because God is trying to make a point. So we need to understand apocalyptic literature. Uh, and then we've got uh, parable, uh, which, again, transcends different books of the Bible. It's primarily used in the Gospels by uh, Jesus as a, as a fulfillment of prophecy, by the way, that he would speak in parables. Uh, but it's a brief oral story illustrating a moral truth, and it presents scenes and activities that were common from everyday life and then makes a spiritual application. I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're going to look at it a little more closely with some rules about parables uh, for interpreting parables because people often misinterpret them, uh, misunderstand them, and they try to make more about out of them than they can. But here's an example from Matthew 21 um, where Jesus begins, Well, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, Son, go to work. So he's, he's making a point. Let, let, me, let me illustrate this, basically, is what he's saying. Which of the two do you think did the will of his father? That, that kind of thing. Uh, gospel literature is uh, a subset of narrative literature. Obviously, the historical events recounted by the gospel writers are accurate, 100% accurate. Uh, the Bible always tells the truth. It's, it's infallible. But unlike strict narrative, they're not necessarily giving you a minute-by-minute, blow-by-blow in strict chronological order. They are able to take... Uh, uh, you know, segments and, and, and uh, events or experiences for the life of Christ, accurately retell them, but put them within the, the context of a broader theological point. So as I said, the Gospels are generally speaking uh, chronological. But for example, Matthew puts the Sermon on the Mount very early on. I mean, if you, you read Matthew, you think it probably happened in the first year of his ministry, but it, it, it actually probably happened at the end of his first year of his ministry, right? Uh, even though Matthew puts it right after chapter 4 where he begins. Uh, you know, he's got his baptism and so forth. So, um, so they're trying to make a theological uh, point is, uh, is the idea. And, you know, Gospels are going to be laid out in your English Bibles often very similar to narrative literature because, you know, they're telling a, a story. Um, and then you've got uh, epistolary or uh, expositional literature, which is uh, the you know big portion of the New Testament, and that is uh, in a class by itself. It's carefully reasoned doctrinal argumentation. It's like a legal brief. Uh, it's explaining how to live life and, and and theological principles about God and and man and so forth. It's organized. It's logical. Typically, the letters. Uh, an epistle just means a letter. So we're talking here about, you know, Romans, 1st and Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude. You know, uh, most of them written by Paul, 13 of them, but not all. 
uh, but they often begin with an, you know, an, uh, an introduction and a greeting, and they end with a benediction, you know, or salutation, those types of things. And so these are fairly easy to identify too. I, I picked Romans 8, a famous passage we're all familiar with. Romans is, is, is a perfect example, a quintessential example of a doctrinal treatise. It's Paul's magnum opus, you might say. And we read, There is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit is in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, and so forth and so on. So, you know, you'll see historical information in a letter. Sometimes the writers will refer back to a historical account, often, uh, particularly from the Old Testament. Um, but uh, but it's, 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 it's teaching. It's strictly teaching. And so that's why one of the principles we looked at in our 24 rules of interpretation early on was that you know, narrative literature does not usually teach a doctrine directly. It illustrates a doctrine that is taught directly in the epistles. So we get most of our doctrine from the epistles. Um, but that doesn't mean that you know, the whole counsel of God shouldn't be preached. It should. And indeed, uh, all Scripture is profitable, 2 Timothy 3.16. And so, uh, you know, I've made it a, a habit through 32 years of ministry to try to spend some teaching time in the Old and some in the New uh, regularly. Most preachers uh, uh, do that uh, because we want to keep it in balance. But it's, i got to tell you, it's much easier to teach and preach from the epistles than any other type of genre. Because it's just telling you right now, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to know. This is the, these are the facts of the matter. Uh, and so, uh, so that's just a quick overview of, of, uh, of genre. And uh, next uh, time, uh, we will have a little exercise that I want to do to kind of quiz you on uh, you know, whether you can identify a different genre. I think it'll be pretty easy for you. Um, and you know, I can remember... Uh, Years and years ago, when I was just starting out in ministry um, and had been saturated from years of, of formal study in, in my first time in seminary, so this would put me in my mid-20s, that I used to play a game with, with young people where they would randomly open their Bible and read without telling me where from, and I couldn't see their Bible. And then I would try to guess what book of the Bible it was from. And I was pretty good at, at usually getting it right. Uh, not necessarily because, or not at all, because I had the Bible memorized. I certainly do not. But you just you begin to think of the Bible in terms of its structure, and the way God revealed and unveiled Himself to us, and that it's not just one, you know, sort of monolithic book. I mean, it is in the sense that God is the divine author, but the way in which He chose to unveil Himself to us happened in a historical context you know, in a particular literary genre, and, uh, and you can begin to learn to identify those. So anyway, that's all I've got for tonight. We'll, uh, we ended up taking up almost the whole hour, um, but that's uh, because no one was here to stop my train of thought with brilliant questions, and so I was able to just keep on going, and I didn't know when to stop. But uh, anyway, thanks for uh, streaming with us, and I uh, hope you have a great rest of the week. Stay warm, uh, and we will see... Those of you in the Denver metro area uh, at Plum Creek on Sunday, again, Lord willing. 
And uh, those of you that are joining us by stream, we will see you uh, on uh, the Internet uh, this uh, coming Sunday, 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock Mountain Time. Thanks and God bless.